Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week, twice a week, on Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast. It's good to be with you again. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this episode has been kind of lingering in the background for a while after I did the first two installments of this um of this type, which I call prescribing poisons. This is my way of helping you recognize that some of the things that are being prescribed to you uh, by your doctor may not be the best fit for you. I have to stand right up front and say, I am not a doctor and I don't claim to be one. This is not designed to be misconstrued as medical advice. This is all about warning you to beware of your prescriptions and take a close look, perhaps get second or third opinions if you're unsure about a prescription that you've been recommended. Uh, This is not me stepping in between you and your doctor and does not replace any advice that he or she may give you. It's just the news as I see it when it comes to certain pharmaceuticals. Today, we'll talk about one known as gabapentin, Also, Lyrica, which is uh, very closely associated with gabapentin, uh, which is also known as Neurontin, if you're uh, familiar with it under that name, which is a brand name. We'll also talk about a class of drugs called ACE inhibitors, specifically lisinopril, because it's the most well-known, but there's a list of about 10 of them that I'll go over with you. Basically, gabapentin FDA is approved as a drug primarily for seizure disorders. Whereas uh, Neurontin or Gabapentin, Lyrica are approved, um, or sorry, are approved for that. They are utilized for a wide range of other things, which I'll talk about. And it's one of the most heavily prescribed drugs in America. Lisinopril, ACE inhibitors, that category, all about blood pressure, high blood pressure, hypertension. And I've talked a lot on other episodes of Vitality Radio about natural things that can assist with regulating blood pressure. And I, if we have time, I'll share some of those at the end of this episode as well. But primarily, this show is about letting you know about some things that you probably don't know, that you probably haven't been told when it comes to these drugs. And if you've been prescribed these drugs or have considered taking these drugs in the past, I want you to have as much consent, informed consent as you possibly can so that you can decide if they're right for you. So that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, All month long, we are celebrating our 46th anniversary. I call it our 46th birthday of Vitality Nutrition. I can't believe that it's been 46 years. That says something about me. Uh, My parents opened it when I was five, so you can do the math on that. But uh, an absolute blessing and an honor to be serving you uh, as what uh, seems to be considered a little bit of a health and nutrition um, guru in some circles. I would say I'm far from 
far from guru status, but I hope that I bring you a bunch of great information on a weekly basis that can help you. And I anticipate that part of the reason that we do have such a loyal fan base at Vitality Nutrition is because of the education that we try to provide, because we have really tried to put that first and foremost. And I must say, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us, even if it's just been for the last few months since you've discovered us, or if you've been with us for a long, long time. We appreciate it very, very much. If you're a Facebook person, jump on Facebook and join the Facebook listeners community. Uh, We're hoping to hit 500 members in just the next few weeks. In fact, we may even get there before this episode is released. But without further ado, let's get into prescribing poisons part three. Okay, so let's talk about gabapentin here. Gabapentin uh, has, for me, has always been a drug that I've been a little leery of. Now, if you know me, you know I'm leery of most drugs, but I'm not opposed to all drugs, and I will use drugs uh, when I believe that they are the best option for me. But, you know, generally speaking, I'm finding natural alternatives, so I'm always going to be a little leery. But gabapentin is a little bit unique. There are certain drugs that I get people coming in on a regular basis saying things like, well, it didn't help and I felt like crap or, you know, some other feeling of this wasn't good for me, some side effect that they were experiencing. I hear that with gabapentin a lot. Now, I would anticipate that I have a lot of customers at Vitality that are on gabapentin that don't feel it bothers them uh, and feel that it's probably helping them. And I probably don't hear much about it from them because they're not complaining about it. They think they're, you know, doing okay. But the biggest thing I see with gabapentin is people that do tell me that they're on it for nerve pain or for something else and say, it's not helping me. Um, you know, are there natural things that can potentially help me? And so I see a lot of discontent, we'll say, with this heavily, heavily prescribed drug. But up until recently, when I decided I wanted to dive into it to do this episode of the show, I didn't know. I I had heard whispers, I guess, seen some things online, some headlines here, some headlines there, uh, talked to a couple of practitioners that I know that have questions about gabapentin. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to see if this qualifies as what I would consider a poison that gets prescribed an awful lot here in America. And of course, I'm talking about it now, so it qualifies. So let's talk about it. According to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health uh, on PubMed, they say gabapentin has gained widespread use since its entry to the market. And a significant portion of this use has been reported as off-label. That includes, uh, or that means things the FDA hasn't approved it for, but that doctors believe it may be effective for, uh, or maybe there's some clinical evidence that it could be effective for, even though it's not approved for that. So if you have a seizure disorder, gabapentin is an approved drug for seizure disorders. But if you've got diabetic neuropathy, um, it may be prescribed for you, but that would be an off-label use. So what are the off-label uses? Bipolar disorder is one that I hear fairly often. Neuropathic pain, nerve pain, diabetic neuropathy, complex regional pain syndrome, attention deficit disorder, restless leg syndrome. I've heard that one a lot. Trigeminal neuralgia, periodic limb movement disorder of sleep, uh, migraines and drug alcohol withdrawal seizures, drug and alcohol withdrawal seizures. Sorry. Gabapentin may have become a bit of a catch-all according to the NIH medication due to the uncertainty around its exact mechanism of action. Now I love that last statement because it, 
it says a lot about medicine in America and particularly medicine in America that is being approved for off-label uses, which happens quite a bit. Now, to step this back just a little bit, I don't think the FDA is the be-all, end-all in terms of telling us what's safe and what isn't. In fact, I think they're one of the least reliable organizations probably in the history of the world when it comes to safety and effectiveness of medications or natural products or anything under their jurisprudence. So, you know, just because it's not recommended by FDA for a specific use doesn't mean it doesn't work for that use. And I've certainly talked to people who have restless leg syndrome and say it has helped them with that. And I've talked to people with neuropathy that say it has helped them with that. Talked to a lot of people that say it hasn't helped them with those things, like I stated before. But it's not just that it's an off-label use. It's that last sentence. It's a catch-all medication due to the uncertainty around its exact mechanism of action. So what that means is pretty simple, right? They don't know how it works. They just know that it might work. That's pretty important, I think, because if you don't know how something works, how do you know if it's safe for the general population, particularly if it's being prescribed for people with on other pharmaceuticals, if it's being prescribed for people with specific chronic conditions, if it's being prescribed for pregnant women or nursing women or children or things like that. How do we know if it is reliably safe if A, there haven't been any safety studies done on those people, which is why it hasn't gained um, FDA approval in those areas, and B, if we don't even know what in the world it's doing once it's inside of your body. Because yes, I'm all for symptom relief. I'd love to have relief of symptoms, of any symptom that I ever have, but not if I don't understand what the potential for damage is on the other side of that relieved symptom. So over the years, many researchers and doctors have started raising questions about gabapentin and about its safe use, but the statistics show that it hasn't slowed down the prescribing of gabapentin at all. According to the National Prescription Audit done by IQVIA, total prescriptions dispensed for gabapentin were approximately 33.4 million in 2011. By 2015, just four years later, 56 million, almost double. Uh, 68 million, another 12 million in 2019. By 2020, it was 69 million. And by 2021, that went up to 71 million. So over the last 10 years, it's climbed from 33.4 million all the way to 71 million prescriptions. So it's gaining traction, it looks like at right now, about a million a year over the last few years. Uh, well, actually closer to 2 million per year. To be clear, uh, as I stated at the beginning, gabapentin is a generic name for the drug. The other, the, the, the uh, brand names are Neurontin, uh, Grelise, G-R-A-L-I-S-E, and Horizont, uh, like uh, Horizon with a T on the end, and I guess it's an ant on the end instead of int. But anyway, Horizont, Neurontin, and Grelise. And now we have a new one called Lyrica, relatively new, that is not the same drug, but it's very, very similar in terms of its mechanism based on what they think it might actually be doing. So I read this article from stanford.edu, okay, it's from Stanford uh, Medical by a doctor, uh, Bruce Goldman, um, who states that uh, there were studies published, and this article is about five years old, so about five years ago, that pinpoint for the first time 
So now for about over five years, we've known this now. The biochemical mechanism by which the widely prescribed, prescribed drug gabapentin also uh, marketed under the trade name Neurontin actually works. So let's listen to this for just a second here. Now for five years, we've known what the drug actually does. Prior to that, they were recommending and prescribing it, not knowing what it did, only that it might help you with side effects for a lot of these things. Uh, Bruce Barnes, MD and PhD, professor and chair of neurobiology, um, is the, the one who headed the study. The study shows that gabapentin halts the formation of new synapses in the brain, possibly explaining its therapeutic value in mitigating epileptic epileptic seizures and chronic pain. This insight, however, may lead physicians to reconsider the circumstances in which the drug should be prescribed to pregnant women. Now, why would that be? Why would that be a problem for pregnant women? Well, because the developing fetus and the brain, specifically in that developing baby, needs to rapidly build synapse synapses in the brain to connect uh, neurological activity and make the brain function as it should and grow as it should in that rapid pace that it's doing when the baby is in the womb. And I would dare say also uh, when the baby is being nursed um, at once it comes out, right? So the paper was published, um, I, like I said, about five years ago in the journal Cell. It looks at the interaction between neurons, the extensively researched nerve cells that account for 10% of the cells in the brain, and the less studied but much more common brain cells called astrocytes. Much work has been done on how neurons transmit electrical signals to each other through synapses. The nanoscale electrochemical contact points between neurons. So in other words, we have these two brain cells known as neurons, and they are connected through this kind of empty space, but it's not totally empty, called the synapse, right? Those are the contact points where electrochemical uh, communication is happening through things like electrolytes and neurotransmitters. It is the brain's circuitry of some 100 trillion of these synapses that allow us to think, feel, remember, and move. It is commonly agreed that the precise placement and strength of each person's trillions of synaptic connections closely maps with that person's cognitive, emotional, and behavioral makeup. In other words, the way that you kind of are mentally and emotionally has and behaviorally um, very, very much to do with what's happening at those synaptic connections. It's a lot about who we are and how we behave, but exactly why a particular synapse is formed in a certain place at a certain time has largely remained a mystery. In 2005, uh, Bar. Bares, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name or not, took a big step towards explaining this process when he and his colleagues discovered that a protein astrocytes secrete called thrombos, sorry, thrombospodin, thrombospodin, I think that's probably going to be it, spondin, uh, is essential to the formation of this complex brain circuitry. Now, this gets pretty technical, and I'm not a scientist, uh, but I think it's all pretty easy to understand if you if you pay attention to what's being said. And I stated that this uh, this study is actually, you know, five years old earlier, but uh, I was looking at 2005. This was actually published in 2009. So we've known about this stuff for 14 years now, almost exactly 14 years, not five years like I originally stated. So I apologize for that mistake. 
So 14 years now we've been talking about this uh, and it's been researched. And what they found is that this thrombospondin, this protein is essential to the, co- the formation of the complex brain circuitry. Still, no one knew the precise mechanism by which this thrombospondin uh, actually induced synapse formation. So they did a new study, uh, and it was now Bares and lead author Kagla Iroglu, a PhD, and their colleagues that demonstrate how thromb- thrombospondin, that twists my tongue, binds to a receptor found on neurons, outer membranes. The role of this receptor, known as alpha-2 delta-1, had been obscure until now, but in an experiment with mice, the scientists found that neurons lacking alpha-2 delta-1 were unable to form synapses in response to thrombospondin stimulation. And when the researchers grew neurons in a dish that were bioengineered to overexpress this receptor, those neurons produced twice as many synapses in response to stimulation with thrombospondin than did the unmodified counterparts. Okay, so when they remove the ability of the thrombospondin to connect to that uh, neuron, then the synapse isn't formed. And when they add extra thrombospondin, twice as many of those synapses are formed. So it's a critical, critical thing. Now, they learned that, and then they were able to look and recognize something really, really important when it comes to gabapentin and these drugs that we're talking about here. The new discovery about alpha-2 delta-1's key role in synapse formation carries important implications for understanding the cause of pain and of epilepsy and developing improved medications for these conditions. It was already known that alpha-2 delta-1 is the neuronal receptor for gabapentin. Okay, so alpha-2 delta-1, the same one that receives that thrombo spondin that is critical for the development of the synapse also happens to be the receptor for gabapentin, one of the world's most widely administered medications. Gabapentin is often prescribed for all those things that we talked about before, okay? And again, they haven't known why it might help, just that it helps uh, and that it binds to this receptor. In the new study, These colleagues of Barre's found that when gabapentin was administered in developing mice, it bound to the alpha-2 delta-1, preventing thrombospondin from binding to the receptor and in turn impeding synapse formation. Now think about this for a minute. This is really important. I don't know how much you know about brain chemistry. I didn't know much about it at all until the last few years when I started researching it, and it's fascinating stuff and it's incredibly deep. But this is actually really, really simple. If we can't make new synapses, if we can't make new connections in the neurons, there are all types of things that could potentially go wrong. And again, I'm not a scientist here. I I know what I know, but I don't know what it means when we stop this in its entirety, but it certainly seems pretty scary to me. Now, we know as children, we grow brain cells like crazy. We're making all these connections Tons and tons and tons of stuff is happening in the womb, and especially during the first seven or eight years of life, it slows down a little bit as we age, and then it slows down quite a bit once we become adults, but it doesn't stop. They used to say you can't make more brain cells, you can't make more connections, but we know that's not true anymore. How much we do make, 
I don't know if anybody actually knows that. I haven't found any evidence that we know exactly how many new connections we're making, but we do know that we're making new connections all the time. We also know that neuroplasticity is real and neuroplasticity has a lot to do what's happening with what's happening between these neurons at the synapse level. So if we now have a drug that we know is preventing the new formation of synapses, of brain connections, neurological connections, connections, that would literally mean to me that it's stopping the growth of the brain and the repair of the brain. I don't think that's overstating it at all. In fact, the researchers seem to feel very, very similarly. So now it says that, yes, it reduces the excess synapse formation in vulnerable areas of the human brain, which can be why somebody has a seizure. So on the one hand, that can be a real win from a symptomology standpoint, because they believe that there are vulnerable areas of the brain where too many synapses are being formed. And if we can shut that down, then we can help people not seize as much anymore. And in some cases, that can even be life-saving. So it's it's as with almost every drug, it's not just cut and dried. There are all kinds of various effects we have to look at. But what about for things like restless leg syndrome or the pain associated with shingles or diabetic neuropathy? You know, these are highly uncomfortable things. And unfortunately, we seem to be finding highly controversial drugs to treat those things because opioids, we know what's happened with those. Benzodiazepines, we know what's happened with those, but now we have gabapentin. And gabapentin also happens to now be a very significant drug of abuse. In fact, it's becoming a very big problem. As I was Googling around, what I found was a whole bunch of recovery centers offering help for people to get off of gabapentin uh, after abusing it. It has also been a drug that is now being used by some people uh, to commit suicide with overdosing. So there are some significant questions with this drug. And so from my chair and the way that I see it, we have to be really, really cautious, especially if we're not talking about treating something that is um, life-threatening with this drug. We're talking about treating something that is very uncomfortable with this drug, which is mostly what it's used for, nerve pain and things like that. And don't get me wrong, nerve pain, which I thankfully don't have any kind of chronic nerve pain like, um, uh, you know, neuropathy or things like that. I've experienced enough nerve pain uh, due to my uh, issues with my hip that you may have heard me talk about over the years that I recognize how incredibly debilitating and painful that can be. So it's not about me saying, well, it's no big deal. Just deal with the pain. It's about me just raising some red flags and saying maybe there are better options that we can look at and certainly should exhaust some of those options probably before we jump on this drug that we now know prevents the growth of the brain, for lack of a better way of saying it. But it really is true. So let's go on and see what else he says here. He says that um, they noted that uh, they found gabapentin does not dissolve pre-existing synapses, so it doesn't erode the brain, but only prevents formation of new ones. That greatly diminishes gabapentin's potential danger for adults because of the lower level of um, brain cells and synapses that we're making. But we don't know how much 
how significant that is. And especially for people like myself and likely like uh, many other, you know, aging adults uh, that are hitting their 50s and 60s and 70s, we're trying to do as much as we can to prevent the brain from losing it and uh, losing these new connections seems like a pretty bad idea if that's what your game plan is. It's also very concerning for certain people, uh, for example, uh, where the, the synapses that are actually being slowed down in many cases would be the part of the brain where new memories are laid down and at sites of injury to neurons, such as what might occur in a stroke. So we have to be very, very cautious here. The new findings raise questions about gabapentin's effects in situations where synapse formation is widespread and crucial, most notably in pregnancies. The vast bulk of the brain's synapses are formed during gestation and the very early months and years after birth. Because gabapentin easily crosses the placental barrier, it could potentially interfere with the fetus's rapidly developing brain just when global synapse formation is proceeding at breakneck speed. It's a bit scary that a drug that can powerfully block synapse formation is being used in pregnant women, Barres said. This potential effect on fetal brains needs to be taken very seriously. Right now, doctors have the view that gabapentin is the safest anticonvulsant. There is no question that pregnant women with epilepsy who have been advised by their neurologist to continue their anticonvulsant uh, convulsant treatment with gabapentin during their pregnancy should definitely remain on this drug until instructed otherwise. But there is no long-term registry being kept to track gabapentin-exposed babies. Our findings are saying that we need to be following up on these newborns so that their cognitive performance can be studied as they grow older. So for pregnant and nursing women especially, very, very serious concerns. But also I would say anybody who is concerned about the development of new brain connectivity, which I think should be all of us, has to be concerned and alarmed at these new studies. But keep in mind, again, that gabapentin prescribing is going through the roof. It's up to 70 million, 71 million per year. And over the last 10 years has more than doubled even though we now know that 14 years ago, that's what gabapentin does. It stops the development of new connections in the brain. Big, big concern for me. Okay, we're gonna jump to the next category here, uh, which is uh, ACE inhibitors and blood pressure and why these are concerning as well. However, before I get into that, I want to uh, do this. So we're celebrating our 46th anniversary, our 46th birthday party at Vitality Nutrition. And I'm doing these little kind of Easter egg things, I think is what they're called in like movies and video games. I don't know what they call them in podcasts, but just throwing them in the mix just for you listening on the podcast. Although I'm doing additional ones over on Instagram that are different from these. And uh, I want to go ahead and offer you a, a special opportunity. This is for the first 10 people that take advantage of this at vitalitynutrition.com. Uh, you can only buy one of them. If you do buy more than one, because our system won't prevent you from buying more than one, we will refund your money uh, on the additional ones that you bought because we really can't afford to do this deep of a discount for more than 10 people. And we want 10 different people to have the opportunity to test this out. All right. So this one is a really, really unique one. 
I'm not going to do this very often. Can't really uh, make it work on any kind of a regular basis, but we're going to give it a shot here on for people listening to this episode of Vitality Radio, the first 10 people that jump at VitalityNutrition.com and use the code SPORE46. Spore 46, you'll get 46% off of Vital Spores, the precision probiotic that I put together, also known as a psychobiotic for mental health and well-being. It is what I believe is the most comprehensive probiotic on the market and easily our flagship product. We have more people using Vital Spores than anything else that we've, frankly, ever sold at Vitality Nutrition in the 46 years we've been there. This is a one-time thing. 10 of you will get the 46% off of the 30 capsule bottle, which is normally $40. So you get it for just a little over 20 bucks, by far the lowest price I've ever offered it at. You can only buy one of them. And like I say, if you throw two or three in the cart, I will pull out and refund the money on those extra ones. And we'll just send you the one bottle. So please recognize that this is a short-term thing. It's our way of thanking you for your loyalty to Vitality Nutrition and VitalityNutrition.com. So 46% off of Precision Probiotic Vital Spores. We'll have a link in the show description for you, but it only applies to the first 10 people that jump in and take advantage of the offer. Okay, so let's go on to the next topic at hand, and that is ACE inhibitors for blood pressure control. Um, the ACE inhibitors that uh, the one that I'm going to mention specifically, and I'll probably refer to it more than any of the other ones is lisinopril simply because it is by far the most prescribed. Uh, it's also known as Prinavil and Zestril in the, as far as brand names, but there's also Lotensin, Capotin, Vasotec, uh, Monopril, Univask, uh, Aceon, Acupril, Altace, Mavic, uh, and a whole bunch of other um, uh, generic names uh, that we have for these drugs. So I'm not going to go through all of them here, but if you want to look up and see if the blood pressure medicine that you've been prescribed is an ACE inhibitor, uh, that's pretty easy to figure out on you know rx.com or drug, drugs.com or something like that. So um, I am borrowing pretty heavily from an article that was written by, uh, well, on a website called The People's Pharmacy. And this article is really, really interesting. I don't typically do a lot with articles like this, but there is a lot of evidence now uh, that um, applying to ACE inhibitors, that these symptoms that we're going to talk about that are, or sorry, not symptoms, but side effects that we're going to talk about are way more common than we think. And in some cases, these are side effects that aren't listed as side effects. And so you wouldn't know that they are a side effect um, unless your doctor is somehow aware because you won't even find it on like rx.com or something like that. So let's look at it. Um, According to the article, they've frequently written about what's called the ACE-I cough, which is the ACE inhibitor cough. This lisinopril side effect drives many patients crazy because it can keep them awake at night, cause incontinence, and make them miserable. This is not a minor side effect. Some people throw up because of ACE uh, ACE inhibitor-induced cough. And here are a few stories. So these are actually anecdotal stories of uh, people who've written into this website and said, this was my experience with the ACE inhibitor. And I think these are really important for 
one really specific reason, but a couple of additional reasons that I'll go to into in just a moment. Um, this is the first one. I've been coughing to the point of vomiting for the last two years. My primary doc said it was post-nasal drip, asthma, or heartburn. When none of those proved true, I called an allergist who asked me right over the phone about my blood pressure meds. I called back my general practitioner and he said, oh yes, that drug causes coughs too. I could have screamed. Think about that. Two years of vomiting, coughing to the point of vomiting, uh, and all because of her ACE inhibitor lisinopril prescription. Uh, here's another one. I was taking lisinopril for about three months. It was crazy. The coughing was so bad. I too was unable Sorry, I too was unable to sleep or eat. My body was hurting all over and the coughing was so bad I started gagging with violent coughing spells. My back felt like someone was stabbing me with a knife. My body almost shut down. I was not able to sleep for three days. I was having panic attacks and was unable to eat. My husband and daughter stayed home for three days to take care of me. On the third day, my doctor was able to see me. By that time, my body was so weak and my skin was so pale that it was hard to get dressed. I had reached out to all my family and friends and asked them to pray for me. I was thinking, am I going crazy? I was not able to stop crying, probably due to lack of sleep and food. When my doctor walked in the room, she was so surprised to see how I looked. My husband was very upset. My doctor just said the coughing was from lisinopril, but not the other symptoms. I have been off lisinopril for two weeks and wow, I feel great. No back pain, very little coughing and lots of sleep. Here's another one for you. Uh, these ones are life-threatening ones as opposed to incredibly um, devastatingly debilitating ones like a chronic cough. A lisinopril cough can ruin the quality of life, but it, and it can disrupt sleep and it can lead to other complications, but something known as angioedema can actually be life-threatening. One night after taking lisinopril, my lips began to swell as if I had a fever blister. Within two hours, my face was extremely swollen and my throat began to feel like it was closing off my air passage. I went to the hospital and spent the night in the emergency room with an IV and other meds. My doctors identified that I had a reaction from the lisinopril. I still had some swelling a, a full 24 hours after the incident. I was told that I was lucky because they were going to do a tracheotomy. They're going to cut into this person's throat to let them breathe. I had taken lisinopril for four years before the reaction. I would strongly advise alternative medications other than lisinopril and recommend anyone who has been taking this for any length of time have a discussion with their physician. All right, so that one is the most important one, I think, here. This patient had been taking it for four years without incident and then got to the point where they almost couldn't breathe and could have died and nearly needed a tracheotomy. I think this is one of the most important things that I can drive home, and I probably have mentioned this on the previous episodes of Prescribing Poisons on the Vitality Radio podcast, but I think it's human nature to take a thing, and I don't really care what it is, whether it's pharmaceutical or natural or otherwise, or even eat a food that you eat on a regular basis and somehow become sensitive to over time, which actually happens quite a bit, especially if your gut is kind of a mess. These drugs are very much wild cards in terms of when they start to cause problems. I've read articles uh, which seem to have been whitewashed from the internet. I can't find them anymore. But in the past, I've read articles saying that after 10 years on lisinopril, you have a significant increase of every possible side effect just about that uh, you didn't have in the first 10 years you were on it. 
This particular individual was on it for four years before they had any issues at all. Every one of these uh, stories that I read was from someone who was on the drug for an extended period of time before they knew the drug was actually creating issues or before the drug started to create issues. And I think that is so critical because when you look back on your you know, symptoms of whatever symptoms you might have, you tend to look at the time that you started having the symptoms and what changed around that time, right? Like, uh, you know, was I recently vaccinated for something? Uh, did I recently have a high level of stress? Uh, did I change my diet? Uh, you know, was I ill and then started having symptoms after the illness cleared up? You know, all kinds of things that you might look at around that time. But would you, if you started having a chronic cough, which during COVID, lots of people started having chronic coughs. And so they would automatically link it to COVID and likely it was from COVID. But what if it was from lisinopril that you've been on for five or six or seven years and you never had a cough before? And then you're doing all kinds of things to try and clear up the cough, like possibly even antibiotics, which will do even more damage to your health, especially if they're used when you don't need one. There's all kinds of potential issues with these things that you're never going to relate unless you already know to look back to a drug that you've been on for years without incident. And it's not just lisinopril. It happens with cholesterol drugs, statins. In most cases, people don't have immediate side effects from statins. They have long-term side effects from statins. So this angioedema thing is really, really interesting because in most cases, you're gonna, it's going to express itself with swelling in the lips, in the throat, uh, the tongue, the jaw, these areas, but it doesn't just happen there. It can also happen uh, in the gut, believe it or not. So let's jump to the next one. Um, this one says, I was put on lisinopril for high blood pressure in January. That month, I experienced severe stomach cramping and vomiting. So hers was right away. I was rolling on the floor in agony. The doctor said it was most likely the flu, but started me on two different antibiotics in case it was bacterial. In case it was bacterial, okay? A few weeks later, I had another attack with severe stomach cramping and vomiting. I went to the ER where I was given IV pain meds. A CAT scan showed small intestine inflammation, partially blocking off my bowel. I was sent home, but returned the next day with pain that was a 10 on a 10 scale. The doctor said that all the tests had been done and there was nothing he could do. I was sent home with pain medication. A few weeks later, I was admitted to the hospital with increased small intestine inflammation and another blockage. I vomited and dry heaved for 12 hours. I was released four days later with no definitive diagnosis. I was told most likely I had Crohn's disease, but a colonoscopy was negative for Crohn's. I underwent extensive tests, including endoscopy, and all were negative. None of the doctors made a connection with the drug lisinopril. After two months of missing work, three more ER visits, and untold suffering, I found several other people who reported similar symptoms connected to lisinopril. I stopped the medication and have not had another attack. If you look on PubMed, you can see reports on lisinopril and intestinal angioedema, but doctors don't think to connect this with lisinopril because it is not listed as a common side effect. So once again, we find that doctors in many cases are not going to immediately point to a drug that they prescribed 
and say, this is the problem. And especially if they don't even know it could be a problem because FDA and pharma haven't even told the doctor in the literature that that could be a potential side effect. This is a life-threatening side effect. Think about what this person went through. They were on two antibiotics for something that was not a bacterial infection. That's only going to make the gut more vulnerable, the immune system more vulnerable. It's going to make them sicker, not better, right? They went to the ER three different times. They were put on pain meds, which I am going to assume are opiates. I don't know, but probably uh, opioids, which come with the potential for long-term addiction and potentially death, right? So antibiotics, opiates, all kinds of different tests and x-rays, and they had just been on the drug for less than a month when they started having all the conditions. Why in the world would that doctor not say, well, we did put you on a new med, let's take you off and see what happens? Why would the patient not ask the doctor to take him off the new med and see what happens? Because unfortunately, it seems that people don't take drug side effects nearly as seriously as they probably should, especially if they've been on the drug for an extended period of time. I was with a client the other day who's on four different medicines, and I asked if they were content being on those medicines, if they thought that they were helping, and they said, I don't want to rock the boat. So I'm going to stay on all these things. Now, I'm not asking them to get off of those things or recommending that they get off those things, but I wanted to understand if they were planning to stay on those things so that I could make sure and know what they're on uh, so I could have them consult with their doctor about anything that I might recommend in the natural world. And it's an interesting conversation that whenever I ask that question, I get some people that say, well, yeah, I'd like to get off all of these drugs. I don't like being on drugs. And other people that say, well, I just don't want to rock the boat because I'm kind of doing okay right now. But at the same time, are they doing okay if they're in my office saying that they're dealing with a variety of different symptoms that they can't seem to get relief from? You get my point? So there's different ways to look at this. As I stated at the beginning, I'm very leery of pharmaceuticals, and I'm going to stay as far away from them as I can unless I feel like there is not an alternative that can do the job that I need it to do. The reason I do these prescribing poisons episodes is not to scare you off of drugs, is to make you aware that we need to pay attention to the prescriptions that are being given. Some of them are being given with great wisdom. Others, I think, are being given very much in a willy-nilly fashion. And that is a problem in modern medicine. It's a big problem in modern medicine. I hope this has been a helpful conversation for you. I hope that the information here has um, been of value. I'm going to do a follow-up to this with some things that are used for many of the same things that gabapentin is used for and for blood pressure, what lisinopril is often used for. I'm going to talk about natural things that you can consider doing. Again, this isn't medical advice. It doesn't replace what your doctor is telling you or your pharmacist is telling you. It is just giving you alternative information that you can look at and then make what the best decision that you can for yourself. That'll be next week's Wednesday episode of Vitality Radio, Prescribing Poisons Part 3, um, with the follow-up of alternatives for these things. So that's what we'll talk about then. Hey, in the meantime, again, I appreciate you so, so much for supporting this show for supporting our website, VitalityNutrition.com, for supporting our store, Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful, for joining our Facebook listeners community, for chatting with me on Instagram. I appreciate it all so very much. 
It's been a pleasure bringing this show to you, and I continue to do it every week, twice a week, unless somebody makes me stop. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you.